I'm Jim Frawley, and this is Bellwether. To Bellwether, thank you for joining yet again this week. We have, I'm very excited about our guest this week. We have a guest, and I like to highlight leaders wherever they are. And these could be political leaders. We have the, the former mayor of Belfast who's doing major community things recently. Uh, they're business leaders, uh, sports leaders. We had a professional boxer on. We do all these people who just lead by example. But I've never gotten into the arts. And I'm excited to get into the arts because when we think about leaders and we think about bellwethers and people who really just drive emotion and drive change and all that, it's the best writers, the best playwrights, it's the people, the poets, the people that can really tap into emotion. They can get us distracted when we need to be distracted. And they have this capability, this amazing capability to take us to another place. But building that is a challenge. And that's why I, I, I'm very happy to invite our guest this week, Patrick Flynn, to Bellwether Hub. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you so much, Jim. Uh, Patrick, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us you know, what you do, where you're from, and all that good stuff. Sure. Uh, so I'm from uh, Wilmington, Delaware, born and raised, though the playground is where I spent most of my days. And uh, I wa- have always been into theater, film, entertaining, comedy, any of that sort of stuff. Um, Ever since I was too young to know what it was. And uh, so much so that I had my kindergarten teacher when I was five. I was a very hard student to control. And she threw me in the school play to say, here, put your energy there. And I've been kind of hooked ever since. Um, And... I've bumped around a lot. My wife and I have lived in a lot of different cities in a lot of different states. We've been on the East Coast. We've been on the West Coast. I've done film. I've done web content when that was new over a decade ago. Um, And uh, then got back into theater again after moving back to the East Coast and sort of have made that my home uh, for the last five or so years. And then I've also uh, been podcasting for about the same amount of time. And... um, enjoying that very much and uh, have found a lot of met a lot of really great people doing that it's been a really interesting sort of social uh thing for me uh being into podcasting so i do describe myself as a a dramatist and a podcaster i think that pretty much suits it that's a good and and a fresh prince of bel-air fan as well and a fresh prince of bel-air fan yes well when you grow up just outside of philly as so many people you and i both went to college with did it uh it kind of seeps into into your soul yeah, a little it just bit. becomes part of your normal comma and and conversational aspect. Yep, that's um, who you are. Now I have a question because when you so you had you have your hands in everything, okay? From from yeah. an arts perspective, right? Mm-hmm. The film, yeah, uh, playwright, podcast, um, the web before it was cool, uh, all that <laughs> stuff, right? So you yeah. you've been there. 
What mm -hmm. is it with arts people going across so many different mediums? Is this just, you know, you have so much creativity that you want to let out in whatever place you can? Or are you just testing new different ways to get a message out? What drives so many arts people to, to spread out over so many different mediums? Well, I mean, candidly, the, the, the honest answer is money. It, it's very hard to make money sticking to one discipline. Um, and the more you can diversify yourself, the more chances you have for, uh, for, for just flat making money, because most of what everything I do is freelance. Um, but the other nice thing about it I found is that I, for me, part of it is, is that I, I get bored um, doing one kind of, of entertainment. I want to do a different one. And when I'm like writing plays, I'm thinking about making movies. If I'm making a movie, I'm thinking about writing a play. It just kind of goes that way. And uh, the, I found that the advantage, though, has been that uh, a number of people I've worked with in the theater have never worked in film or in web video. So I have an experience that makes me unique in that vein, having worked professionally in, in, in web content for a number of years. And then um, likewise, my experience in the theater makes my screenwriting unique. It, it's a little more, uh, I, I like to work with actors a little more than the average filmmaker uh, on my level. I like to uh, write dialogue a lot more than maybe the average filmmaker on my level. So I, I can sort of float among the mediums very easily um, because I've worked professionally in, in all the, the fields and also the podcasting thing comes up to the fact that a lot of my training in film is uh, cross disciplinary with uh, with podcasting. I mean, the experience of how to record audio, how to make it sound good, how to edit it together, um, and what to do with an audio file is something that you have to learn when you study film, as I did. So it just that discipline came very naturally to me. Um, so it's partially a restlessness, I think, partially a desire to try all these different kinds of ways and see which one really, really, you know, stands your hair on end. And then part of it is just the practicalities of if you can hop among these different mediums, there are many more chances to actually earn a living than to, you know, if you stick with one, kind of put all your eggs in one basket, you kind of have to really hope that that one pays out and it may, or it may not. So you have found, uh, you are able to be one of those elusive people uh, who does what they love, right? So, you, I mean, your your love of the arts, your love of theater started in kindergarten, and mm -hmm. now you are building your business however you can monetize it across multiple different ways. But I, it doesn't really sound like you're just doing it for the money. It's you do it because you love it and you're curious and you're restless. Yeah, well, you have to love it. I mean, it, it is one of those, the, the cliche in, in, in my business is if you can imagine yourself being happy doing anything else, do that. I think that's bad. That's a bad way to phrase it uh, because nothing, I think, in, like turns a 20 or 18 year old kid on to be like, well, screw you. I'm going to do it my way. Like, you can't tell me what to do. Like advice that sounds like that. But what it's, right. that advice really tries to say is this is going to be very difficult. So you have to love it because many times, and I tell my students this when I teach all the time, that, that your love of it has to be enough your own joy out of what you do in this business has to be enough because it is all you're guaranteed. You know, we're not even guaranteed from a playwriting standpoint, I'm not even guaranteed the play is going to get produced if I'm writing it. And if it does, that's one in how many, I don't know what the odds are. And I don't want to know frankly what the odds are because that would be discouraging. <laughs> the odds but, are very good. You could do it. I promise. There you go. There, that's the set. Um, but the, so the, the chances of getting produced are very slim. The chances of once you're produced of actually 
connecting and getting good reviews are slim. The chances of whether or not you get good reviews, getting an audience is slim. And then the chance of the play having a life after that is slim again. So, I mean, the odds of actually getting all the way to the fact where you have a play that is published and people want to do it is so small that you really have to love what you're doing because it's all you're guaranteed. You are only guaranteed your own joy out of the process of, of your work. And so if you don't have that, you, you don't have anything. Which sounds, and you talk a lot, what sounds like, you know, what many people would consider success in, in terms of writing a play is you get it picked up and it gets, uh, mm -hmm. it gets performed and all of that stuff and it goes on. But I, I imagine you have to love it because this is one of the most vulnerable jobs I can possibly think of out there because <laughs> when you, and it's, it's why I envy actors and writers so much is you are putting something out there that you have created for people mm -hmm. to just dump all over. Oh, sure. And that, I mean, that is a, a smack to the gut and a smack to the face uh, that, that I imagine would turn many people off just right away. It's what prevents people from getting to, to any type of level. Yeah, it's a very it's it's and it's honestly a part of the business that I don't know that I will ever fully get peace with. I, I have kind of come to a Zen place with reviews and criticism where the the sort of cliche being if you believe the good the good reviews you have to believe the bad ones is sort of the like you have to take it all. So I I yeah. kind of like to look at reviews as interesting feed like one person's feedback. That's just like listening to one audience member with a very who just happens to have a very loud voice um but yeah it's it's tough it's a really really tough part of the business and you kind of have to just accept that all the highs you get when you open a show when you have like an opening night and everybody's there and it's an opening night audience is generally a very friendly audience so they're very excited to be there and everybody's just so relieved that the show's open because it is a lot of work you kind of have to accept that the next morning is going to be an emotional roller coaster because even when the reviews are good or even when they're effusive, they aren't good enough. They're not effusive enough. Like it's not the praise you wanted, you know, it's not the, it, it just never, it never fills the hole. And so the important thing for me personally, and I can only really speak to myself is just to keep that hole, to try, not try to fill that hole with the praise of a review or awards or anything like that. It is simply to go, I did the best I could. The play is exactly how I wanted it to be or close to how I wanted it to be. I hope people like it. I hope people come see it. And if they don't, that's a shame, but we'll get them next time is kind of the bit. It only really bugs me in terms of the business side of, of like when you have a review um, on the internet, which is where all the reviews are. It doesn't really matter who wrote it. When you search my name and the title of the play, you can read any review from published whenever by whomever. And so if you're thinking of doing my play somewhere else and you Google the reviews, I just have to hope that the good ones are the top results and the bad ones aren't. Um, yeah. Or at least that the headlines matter. I don't know how many people actually read the reviews. This is my other thing. As long as the headlines <laughs> are positive, you know, like it's really... It's uh, it doesn't, you know, you sort of can push, you can move on from that. Uh, and but, and it's, um, it, it's good to separate that because you've got your extrinsic, right? The things that mm -hmm. really you can't control and what other people, I mean, you could talk about how much you loved or hated a play based on, you know, how good your dinner was before you went and saw it. And that's going to sure. impact your, your view of it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, filling that hole inside you 
can never be filled by somebody outside of it. And that's, you know, when you are proud to get it to that point where you're comfortable to do that, talk to me a little bit about maybe when, when you, your first piece, right? Where you felt mm-hmm. you filled up your hole by yourself, where you were comfortable enough putting it out there saying, I have created something that I am proud of and I want to share this with the world. How did you get to the point where you were saying, yep, I'm going to put this out there and open it up for critique? Um, well, you don't, you're not, any play, film, podcast, whatever it is, anything you're creating isn't done if it's sitting in a drawer. You know, you don't, it, it requires the audience to see it for it to be fully completed. Because especially with live theater, the audience response is part of it. It's a live event. It's occurring in front of you. So, you know, the actors, the the audience, the the crew, everybody is working as part of this organism that yes, it is written down and I'm the one who wrote it down. But, you know, it's happening live. So many things can go wrong. So many things can go right. Like you say, it could be from the dinner the night before to the projection can break to an an actor can trip and fall and hurt themselves to an audience member can do all kinds of wonderful and terrifying things, especially when you work in children's theaters. I do a lot. Uh, So you have to really relinquish yourself to you. You have to let go. And I, I learned that. Um kind of early from working in from working in film and actually working in web content and kind of realizing that when I was releasing stuff online uh you know the the view count was all that anybody ever really cared about they did that was the big thing that advertisers cared about that's the big thing that producers cared about it was all about hits and the hits to me seemed to be totally independent of whether or not I was doing a good job. All I could do was what I thought was interesting. And anytime I tried to make a video that I thought would get a lot of hits, it would fail spectacularly. And anytime I just made a video that was for me and was fun, it might succeed, might fail, but it also might succeed. I had a much better chance of just doing what I thought was funny and putting it out there and kind of living or dying on that ability. Because there's also so many things about everything that you just cannot control. Like the world we're living in right now uh, is not the world we were living in a month ago. And I have a number of friends who were, you know, had shows that were running that had to close. The shows were about to open that had to close before they even opened. The shows that were scheduled to go into rehearsal that have been canceled or postponed till the fall. And that stinks, but that's just that's life. You know, that's part of the business is that uncertainty of whether or not the thing is even going to be available to be seen you know we all couldn't plan for a pandemic but here we are and the ones who are getting through it the ones who are emotionally i'm talking about the ones who are like mentally pulling it off or the ones who have this sort of zen attitude of thinking like well i wrote the play we'll do it or we won't i'll write another one and that's just how i'm going to get through this period of time because what else can i do you know how else can i contribute there is a certain the thing I wrestle with, with the vulnerability, like, like you were talking about is the, the idea of like, there is a certain arrogance you have to have to be, to say, I made this thing. It's worth seeing. It's worth listening to. It's worth watching, whatever it is. It's worth reading. There has to be a certain amount of arrogance for me to say, Hey, come see my show. It's really good. But attached to that arrogance, you never want to be my sort of model of uh, of nightmare scenario is that back when American Idol was was huge, there were always these clips during the auditions of like people walking in, and in their pre-interview they'd say, "I'm a star, I'm a huge star, they're gonna love me." And then they walk in and they just deliver the like worst singing performance you've ever heard in your entire life, and they get told off, 
and they storm out of the audition saying they don't know what they lost. I'm a star. Like that delusional amount of arrogance is like my nightmare scenario. <laughs> That's who I fear that I might be <laughs> of being like, you should come see my show. And everybody sitting in the show being like, this is terrible of me going like, no, it's not. It's great. You know, there is a certain amount of that that you have to you have to wrestle with. It's that balance of being like arrogant enough to say, no, my my work has value and humble enough to work with collaborators. Theater is highly collaborative. You know, I write scripts and then the artistic director of the theater gets an opinion. The director gets an opinion. And if you're good, I think uh, the actors get opinions. The you know, everyone gets an opinion and then you kind of have to wrestle with the opinions and choose which ones you think are valuable and which ones you think aren't and create a script and put it out there that everybody's more or less happy with. Otherwise, you know, if the director and artistic director and actors aren't happy. You're not going to have a good show, no matter how good you think the script is. I will say that I learned well, do you a think, lot of, mm-hmm. Go ahead. do you think then that your humility, uh, your thoughts of I'm not good enough and, and your, uh, your, your fear of being, you know, arrogant, do you think that drives your success and makes your work better? The fact that it, you have those yeah, feelings. I do. I think it keeps me, I kind of want to hold on to that angst. It, it, it sort of keeps me balanced a little bit. And anytime I think I'm getting too, I think my wife would say I'm a little too hard on myself. Um, Cause I sort of never believe good things are going to happen. And that's kind of because any, the feeling I get when I get my hopes up about something and then it doesn't come true is terrible. I hate that feeling. And I kind of live more in the like, well, it's not going to work out. So there's no problem. And then when it does work out, I'm pleasantly surprised. Uh, she, I think finds that a little unhealthy and she's probably right. But I, I think that living in that balance kind of keeps me always having something to prove that's the arrogance part of being like no i'm good i'm valuable i'm worth it i'm my writing is good and i and i think it's worth seeing combined with the humility of wanting to be the kind of artist who is collaborative and taking pride in that like the best directors i've worked with as an actor or 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 people i studied under were always very very collaborative they always talked about how you have to work with everybody so that everyone's creating something together the people I always hated working with were the autocrats who would come in and tell you exactly where to stand and what to do. And it, it didn't feel like it didn't feel good to be collaborating with those people because it wasn't really a collaboration. I learned a lot of this working uh, as an assistant director for a guy named Stafford Arima, who's a Broadway and West End director. And I had the privilege of, of being his assistant director on a production. And I was amazed by the fact that he would, I would offer a suggestion and he would not only take my idea, but he wouldn't, he would, insist that I say it out loud to everybody so that everyone knew who it came from. And I was sort of amazed that a lot of people you work with will be very selfish and want their idea on stage and only want to do that. He would take ideas from anybody, anybody who had the idea. And I learned quickly that the reason he was doing that was because at the end of the day, the show said directed by Stafford Arima. The audience didn't know whose idea it was. The audience didn't care. The audience wanted a good show, and he was willing to take ideas, the best idea, whether it was his or 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 anyone else's. And at the end of the day, the show the show says by Patrick Flynn on it. I don't care who thought this was a good idea or this what you know whose idea it was. If it was an actor's idea, I'll happily take it and incorporate it if it's the best idea in the room. And so that makes the script better, which makes the play better, which makes me look better, and makes everyone look better. And that's what we're here to do, is to put the best art forward we possibly can. Do you think humility then, so you're right, it's, it's almost like changing the, the perspective on, on where your focus is, because when you're writing it, 
this is my baby, right? This is your baby mm -hmm. that you're working on. You're writing it. This is mine, mine, mine. This is my idea. And I want to take it all the way through. And it's obviously you'd want to control it. Um, I'd imagine, you know, I would, if you know me, if people know me uh, and the people who do <laughs> know me know that I'm not really always open to feedback either. Uh, sure. But separating yourself from your work, I feel like that's what your director did. Um, mm -hmm. Is that he separated, even though it's directed by him, he's separating himself from the product that goes out, the work that goes out. Do you think that's what what is necessary in terms of you know we align ourselves with our work? It's a representative. It's representative of who we are. Do we have mm -hmm. to separate ourselves from the final product that goes out? And when do you know that it's good enough to go out? Oh God. Well, the I'll answer the the first question. The second one's a much longer answer. I think it it is separate. Yes, you do have to certainly separate your personality from the product to a certain extent. Um, you also have to have the confidence, though, in your work to know that just because someone had a suggestion and it wasn't your idea, that doesn't mean you're not a good writer or a good director. It just means that someone had a good idea. And there's a lot of people, I think, when you offer them suggestions in an artistic setting or in any setting, they sort of feel I because I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that when I get notes, I don't get, you know, my Irish up a little bit when people start giving me notes about this thing that I worked really hard on. And what the hell do you know about what I'm doing? That absolutely happens. The trick is to then swallow that a little bit and go, OK, is this a person I respect? Do I respect their opinion anyway? And if I don't respect their opinion, are they paying me to do this? And if they are, then you kind of have to shut up sometimes and, and take the note, uh, depending on what you're doing, obviously. But the second part about whether when you know it's finished, I mean, somebody once said that, you know, plays aren't finished, they're abandoned. And I think that's absolutely true. I, I write the script. I'm writing up through opening. You know, when we have a preview process where the show goes in front of an audience, you know, we work really hard in front of, in rehearsals and we have a lot of speculation, but you really don't know what you have until you put it in front of the audience. And we've, I, I was working on my play Tinkerbell at uh, Adventure Theater out here in, in D.C. And we thought we were doing great. We're running in the rehearsal room and it was going really, really well. And we got it up in front of these kids at the very first preview. And the thing was over an hour long, which is too long for children's theater. And we were losing them at about the 50 minute mark. And we just, we didn't know that we were a bunch of adults in the room. We didn't know that till the kids saw it. And when, what I had to do and the director of that show had to do is we had to sit down and go, okay, how do we make this thing 10 minutes shorter? And the answer to that, when you have to make something shorter, is almost always we have to cut writing. It's not going to be in the blocking. The blocking isn't what's taking so long. The light transitions aren't really slowing it down that much. It's the writing. And so for the next two previews, I, I cut things and then I watch the show. And then we cut some more things and I watch the show. And, you you know, I could have sat there and dug my heels in and said, this is n this far and no further. I've written the show I want to write. It's 65 minutes long. Deal with it. But then the show would not have run very well and uh, everyone would have, you know, no one would have wanted to work with me again. And also it would have not have been the best possible show that it could have been. And because of that, I'm very proud to say, like the actors worked very hard as I made these big cuts to things and, and, you know, cut lines that we'd worked hard on and tore it apart. And the show ran really well and it's been published and it's been performed at, you know, 15 theaters across the country and counting. And I'm super proud of not only that success, but also the fact that, you know, I was in control. I was the one making the cuts. I was the one making the decisions. And when I've gone to see the show since, it is better. It is a tight show that still conveys the message I want to convey. The kids love it. 
And, you know, I miss maybe the longer scenes that got trimmed down from a personal standpoint, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a child and the show's for children. You've got to talk to your audience. You have to know your audience all the time. You have to know your audience. It's very important. Oh yeah. So speaking of audiences, tell me about uh, the podcast, because I know I have specific questions for you on the topics that you cover on your podcast, but talk to me Mm -hmm. a little bit about your podcast. Sure. So the podcast is called The Original Cast, and it's a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. And each episode, I have a person from the theater uh, or just from the entertainment industry, but somebody who is actors, writers, directors, people, as I say, I used to say actually at every episode, someone you'd see on stage, backstage or in the house. It was just people who like theater and love theater and made theater a part of their lives. And they pick an original cast album from a show that they absolutely love. And then we, we talk about it, but I really like to use it as a springboard to talk about what they love about theater uh, and why they love theater and why they do theater. Um, some episodes are deep dives into the text of the show itself. And those are a lot of fun, but the ones I really, really like are the ones where we get to something deeper that the show or the cast album represents for these people and, and how they can, how it informed their love of theater and their life and then how they in, you know incorporated that into, into everything they do. Here's what I've always wanted to know. When All we right. talk about theater, mm-hmm. right? And I love theater. I love it. When you go see a play, I, it's one of my favorite things to do. But I, I don't call all theater theater. And, oh, okay. You know, well, I mean, it is theater, but it's you know when this, I say but is this theater, like a, I'm is this like a about, movie film thing. Is that like a no? Oh, uh, maybe. I guess it's. I don't understand musicals. Okay. <laughs> I just don't get it. I just okay. don't get it. Right okay. as. You go to sit there and, you know, oh, my wife died. I need to sing a song. And they go off on some random thing with big smiles and clapping hands. Explain it to me. What is the draw that everybody loves? I don't get it. Well, to me, so there's a lot of different kinds of musicals, obviously. And I'm not going to like lumping them all into one category is is a mistake Um, because there's they're all very different even the kinds that are running all at the same time you know like there's a big difference between a show like hamilton and a show like cats they're barely the same art form you know what i mean except that they both take place in a theater and they have music and and singing they're they're trying to do very 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 different things but in general uh they are the, the the purpose of a musical the thing that's the draw for the musical is the emotional expression it's the fact that some things in life are just, when you try to talk about them, they're just not satisfying. And so you can do nothing except the, have the music come out of you as it does in, in real life, though not with a full orchestra behind you usually, and express this emotion, be that joy, be it sorrow, be whatever. It's, to me, it's an ama- the best musicals are an amazing emotional catharsis centered around an emotional experience uh, and one that usually has the characters singing in moments of heightened emotion and heightened joy or sadness or love or whatever it is. When the emotions just get so big, they can't talk anymore. They have to sing. And I think we've all felt that way, whether or not, I mean, the theater kids are the special brand of us who actually walk around singing uh, when these things happen. 
That's but true. There are walk, some of you that walk around. Yes. Well, we walk singing. around singing all the time. <laughs> oh, totally. You you just try to stop me. But the um, but you do get you know it's those emotional outbursts we have, which could be laughing or it could be jumping, it could be applause. Like you you have these things that happen in your life that that result in an emotional outburst, and maybe it's contained to you know, a 10 second laugh and you're clapping your hands with just so much joy about what's happening and, and you know, tears come to your eyes because you're laughing so hard. And then maybe it goes on for, you know, a minute and a half or something. And then a musical, we will stretch those to five, six, seven minute songs. Absolutely. But it is a, you know, heightened experience of, of seeing these emotions expressed and be released in this capacity, which is something that music does for everybody. And I, And we all, when we have you know, everybody goes through the experiences probably in high school or in college where you're in a relationship with somebody and it ends and you go back to your room and you put on, you know, the saddest music you have and you wallow in your sorrow for a little while. Music is there to accompany these moments in our lives. The, you know, every wedding, which is a hugely emotional moment, is a, you know, climaxes in a lot of dancing and, and loud music. And, you know, basically a wedding is a jukebox musical, you know, where the cast is maybe, you know, a bunch of people who in my case can't dance, but we all are just so happy. We have no choice but to dance and sing to loud music. And that's how we express the amazing joy that we have. And, you know, a, gr- now, a good well, Irish funeral will be the same way. That's true. They do. And, and, and you know what? It doesn't bother me then. Then I think it's a beautiful moment. And mm-hmm. I think what it, my struggle with it is I, I think it the the music gets paired with just overacting. Sure. And I think that's my my challenge with it. When you see it in a theater, it's different. Obviously, it's a big theater. We're performing large. You see it on film, and it's just I I, I think it's horrible on film, um, personally. But mm-hmm. it's it's I think it's just the the just showmanship that comes with it. When I hear some of these songs from musicals. Uh, they're beautiful songs, and and mm-hmm. I like the differentiation that you did, where it's just you know we can't articulate it in words, so sometimes we do have to sing it, and it's why poetry comes out, and it's why music comes out, and it's all these different uh, hitting different emotions, and I, I like that perspective. Um, but the guy from Hamilton, Lin Manuel, mm-hmm. uh, I saw him in Mary Poppins. I I had to turn it off. <laughs> he was so like loud on the TV, and I was like, oh my goodness, I can't even watch this right now. <laughs> And so maybe that's, I just like the, you know, more authentic, uh, you, you walk around an Irish funeral and people are singing, nobody's mm-hmm. really being bombastic with their sadness. They're just singing, you know, and, and pulling their heartstrings. Mm-hmm. And so that's my, that's, I, I just had to get that out. My emotional challenge with musicals, uh, even though it's beautiful music, uh, maybe they just need to tone it down a little bit. Well, so one thing I have one of the reasons I started the podcast was because I don't, a couple of opinions for me of the way people interact with, with any art musicals, especially, but any art this applies to, I think that we take our entertainment far too seriously sometimes and want all entertainment to be for us. I was, and you knew me in college, so you, this might surprise you, but like, you know, I, cause I was a big advocate of like, we're just going to stand around and scream about objectively this movie is better than that movie or this moment is better than that. You know, there's an objective truth we're kind of railing at. And I found that as I worked in the industry and I watched, you know, I've seen more movies than most people ever will. It, it you know, I spent so much time watching movies in high school, college and grad school, 
I absorbed so much media and I studied it so closely that I kind of came to the conclusion that like, you know, whatever you like is what you like and that's fine. As long as you know what it is, as long as you know what you're absorbing and what you're, you know, what it is, what it's doing to you, the messages that it's, it's sending you like what you like. It doesn't matter. It'd be, you know, I, I don't really believe in guilty pleasures. That phrase kind of drives me crazy. Like I think that you like what you like and you don't like what you don't like, and that's fine. Not everything has to be, for everybody and i think when you see entertainment that tries to be for everyone it ends up looking like something like up with people like it's just a bunch of people smiling and dancing like a budweiser commercial and you're just like that's not really art i mean it's fine but whatever like it, it doesn't really appeal to anybody you know it just sort of ends up being very flat and so I love musicals. I love all musicals, good and bad and I love the sort of over the topness of it because i have I sometimes get very emotional and emotions can go over the top. And I like having that release in, in theater of both seeing and writing it of being, of letting those emotions run rampant for two hours. And then I can go back into, you know, back to the world and, and be a functional human being. If you don't need that, you don't need it. And that's totally fine. And I do also, I should say, I am a hundred percent with you that some of the acting or especially when you put it on, on the camera, Musicals and films are are a, an interesting uh, combination because they often lead to hilariously bad results. Some of them can be great. There are such things as great movie musicals, but they often the acting style does not translate to this to from stage to film. And as a student of both, that's been an interesting thing for me to kind of really realize is just how how nuts musical acting can be. You know, bad musical acting can be, but if you're now with Disney, also you have a whole other wrinkle of it. It's Disney, so God only knows, like what in the like how what they're going for sometimes. But it is, it's it's a tricky art form, and it's not for everybody, and it doesn't have to be. I I, I don't like I I'm not ever going to be somebody like you have to love musicals. I think they're great. I think there's a lot of great musicals out there. There's more good than bad, and I think if everyone was sort of open, you'd find a music. There's a musical out there you'd like. Jim, I'm 100% sure there's a musical well, out there somewhere. You, you actually, like, yeah. and I, I say this with sincerity, you've actually just given me a realization. Mm. Is the fact that because I don't like it, I know so many people who love it. I think I'm just upset that I don't like it and I want to be like them. Mm. And I want to get what they like out of it. And I haven't been able to figure out what it is yet. And so uh, you made me feel better that you like what you like and I don't like it. Yeah. That's okay. But I think I want to like it. And that's my I challenge. Think, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good, like, it, there's a lot of stuff I don't appreciate fully. There's a lot of theater forms that I don't appreciate fully. And I, I find myself, I used to have a teacher in college who said, um, when you talk about somebody they didn't like an artist or something, they would always say, I haven't learned to appreciate them yet. And I used to think that was kind of a cop out. But now I sort of think <laughs> of that as like, that's a really great way to be. It's just be like, that's not my thing. But I'm also not closing the door to that it could be my thing one day. It could be something I greatly, you know, enjoy. It just isn't something I enjoy right now. And who knows, maybe in, you know, a year or 10 years or or just a couple of weeks, I'll find something that'll just completely, you know, set my, my life on fire. I really was sort of not into music. Like, I love musicals, but there was a good chunk of time especially when I was living in LA where I was sort of believed that the music theater was over. 
I was sort of like, well, this is done as much as it can possibly do. There's never going to be a good musical again, a new one. You know, they've all been written and it's kind of over. And then I, I discovered the musical uh, Fun Home, which is a tremendous musical. And that really reinvigorated my joy in music theater. And then I started to see joy all around me in music theater. It just took that one show to kind of drag me back in. And I was a willing participant in that. But it, it, yeah. it really just takes one of those experiences to make you go, oh, my gosh, there's a whole world here that I can, can be enjoying if I just sort of let it, let it happen and take it for what it is. What is your favorite piece of theater? If you had to recommend to anybody, not knowing who they were or anything, you say, this is my favorite piece of theater that I've ever been privy to, what would it be? Um, my favorite play, and this is not hard for me, is uh, Our Town by Thornton Wilder. It is a, okay. which is something I think everybody read in high school or saw in high school or, or did. And it's it's something that I encourage everyone to revisit as much as they possibly can. It's a play that is deceptively simple and is something that you see it, you read it in high school and you think, oh, it's fine. But then if you see it when you're a little older, it means something different. And then you see it after you have kids and it means something entirely different. And then you see it, I'm sure when I get older, it'll keep meaning different things to me. Uh, as it goes on and the play is 60 years old and it still has a very, very vibrant life in the professional theater and in regional theater. And it was just revived off Broadway five or six years ago to wild acclaim. And it just keeps coming back because it keeps having things uh, to say. And it is, I, I think is a big statement, but I stand behind it that I think it is the highest achievement in, in English drama uh, full stop. I think it is just wow. an amazing. Yeah. An amazing, amazing uh, piece of and theater. you know what I love about you picking that is that I believe Our Town is one of only two or three books that I actually did read in high school. <laughs> well, there and you I go. loved it. I remember loving it. <laughs> there you go. See? Yeah. So that's, that's my favorite. Perfect. Yeah. All right. My favorite. Um, we always end the podcasts with book recommendations. Mm -hmm. What's your book recommendation? So, right, I've recently got a Kindle, so I've started reading again. So this is really, really great. And I was, I've been told, I read or heard a podcast or something where it said that reading fiction is really what you should be doing. It simulates your brain in a certain way. But I, lately, I've been digging into nonfiction. And the book that I've been into lately is called Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall, uh, which is about, subtitle is 10 Maps That Explain Everything About the World. Um, I'm a big uh, flag nerd. I love uh, vexillology, as it's called, the study of flags. Uh, and I love um, the, this, this, this sort of design aspect of flags and, and what they say about us. And Tim Marshall wrote another book called A Flag Worth Dying For that is about sort of the power of national symbols. But he, in Prisoners of Geography, he looks at 10 countries and their geographical design, you know, the borders that were drawn. And how those borders sort of explain how they behave. Um, the first chapter is all about Russia. And uh, this is also a book that's only a couple years old. And the first book's all about Russia. The first chapter is all about Russia. And it explains so much about what's going on in the world and the way Russia is behaving and the way Russia behaves towards Europe and the way, like what, what Russia's goals are and how they haven't really changed because of their geographical restrictions. And then he talks about China and he talks about, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it's just really, really fascinating stuff to me. I love the, that sort of integration of design because that's what borders are. You know, they're just lines on a map, but then how those designs create 
practical problems for any number of countries and how also you read this book and he talks a lot about things like sea trade and land routes and and you think we tend to think in our digital experience that those things aren't important anymore but they really are you've still got to get food over a mountain you know you've still got to get people places and he sort of talks about how i was fascinated to read about how you know, China and India share a border and they're two countries that hate each other, but they'll probably never go to war because the border is a giant mountain range and nobody can cross it. So you can't take an army over it. So it'll probably just, they'll probably just keep hating each other from a distance. It's Make a really interesting. Each other. Right. Yeah. It's just sort of a reassuring, I found it very reassuring to be, because you hear a lot of this bluster from countries on the news or for what's going on. It's like, yeah, some of that's something you should be worried about. And some of it's just like, nope, that's just the way those two countries are. And they're just always going to be like That's the way that it goes. That's right. That's just how it is. Yep. Same Good. as it ever was. Yeah. Perfect. Great recommendation. Now I want to read it. I read The Accidental yeah, Superpower. Great book. The Accidental Superpower is another one that I read on geopolitical mm. stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That was a good one, too. So I'll definitely pick up that one. That's good. Um, tell people, how can we find you? What's next for you? How can everybody, you know, tap into the Patrick Flynn world? Sure. Well, my uh, my uh, handle on the, on the socials is uh, at Unknown Penguin across all platforms. Uh, that's what happens when you pick your social media handle when you're 27. And um, I was uh, so you can find me there on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, all that good stuff. You can find my podcast, which, again, is called The Original Cast uh, on the social media is at Original Cast Pod across all platforms. And um, you can find it on iTunes or Stitcher or Overcast or any of those wonderful, um, wonderful, wonderful podcast catcher platforms. Podcasts are weird because there's no like. When I had web series, I used to host them all on YouTube, and I'd say, oh, go to YouTube and search for this web series. But now it's like, podcast, where is it? Well, it's wherever you get podcasts. Uh, everywhere. That's where it is. It's everywhere. Right. <laughs> it's just sort of in the ether. Go find it. Um, that's right. Whatever you're listening to this podcast on, just go to the search bar and type the original cast with Patrick Flynn, and it will, it'll come up. It'll be one of the results. Perfect. Good. Well, Patrick, this has been uh, this has been great for me. I actually may watch a musical this weekend now with hey. sincerity. I got to find a good one, and and maybe I will look good through one. it with a different filter. Um, but this is this is a I find it extremely valuable for people who want to take risks, um, who can separate themselves from the work that they do and still have ownership of it. Uh, and it's just it's it's a great way to think about work, and it's a great way to think about. Uh, creating something and and your your insights were really valuable. So I, I greatly appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. I, I love doing it. And everybody, I will link to all of Patrick's stuff on bellwetherhub.com. Also come out, see what events are going on. We're going to be doing some virtual ones, obviously, now with, with all the corona stuff. But uh, more, 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 more is always going to be on bellwetherhub.com. Thank you again, Patrick. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And I will see everyone out there soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Now, do something for yourself. Bellwether is much more than just a podcast. Join us at bellwetherhub.com, where you can read riveting articles, view upcoming events, and connect with other interesting people. I look forward to seeing you out there soon. Thank you.